You're listening to Tax Talk, a podcast series from the Irish Tax Institute, which explores the world of taxation and your finances. I'm your host, Samantha McCochran. Today, we're discussing global tax reform with Pascal Santama, Director of Tax Policy and Administration at the OECD, Virgil Work Managing Partner at PwC and Leading Expert on Corporate Tax, and Tom Reynolds, Vice President of Global Tax at French multinational Schneider Electric. So the debate on how to tax profits at multinational businesses has been going on for the best part of a decade, after the global financial crisis ushered in a fundamental review of tax rules that had prevailed since the 1920s. Under the direction of the OECD, the first phase of that review focused on tax avoidance and base erosion. It resulted in the adoption of a 15-point programme of tax reform, which has been implemented in 115 countries around the world, and that was adopted in 2016. The current phase began in 2017 and is focused on the tax challenges presented by the digitalisation of the global economy. What has emerged, though it has yet to be agreed, is a far-reaching reform proposal based on two pillars. The first suggests that countries be given a new right to tax the multinational profits generated in their jurisdiction that are not dependent on a physical presence. The second proposes a global effective minimum rate of tax for multinational groups. Last autumn, the OECD published blueprints for this new system of global corporate tax, which they estimate could raise an extra 50 to 80 billion in tax for governments around the world. These technical reports were put out for public consultation. And just last week, the findings of that process were discussed at two virtual public meetings. Now, that's the background. Pascal Santamount, you've been directing this project for the last four years. What happens next and where do you think this process is going to land ultimately? Thanks. And thanks for inviting me and, and happy to be with you today. Where it lands, I don't know when I do. It lands in July at the G20 finance ministers meeting because that's the deadline we have to come up with a consensus-based solution to address the tax challenges of the digitalization of the economy. And as you said, there are two pillars. Pillar one on how to organize a new nexus and new profit allocation rules. Pillar two, which is about putting in place a global minimum tax. So we need to lend by then. That depends largely on the position that the new US administration will take. I think US partners are, are ready, engaged. We'll see. Now, if we don't land, then we may crash, which means that there is no agreement. Countries move on their own. They have, there are unilateral measures. And that would clearly crash multilateralism. I think the group, which is the inclusive framework, will not collapse. There will be ongoing discussion. We've built enough tax cooperation over the past 10 years that uh, this will not disappear, but, but that would harm, I think, the current situation with possible trade sanctions, trade tensions, trade wars or whatsoever. Now, what we can do following a possible agreement is the implementation, which will take a bit more time. One of the uh, themes that emerged in last week's public meetings was that stakeholders are unhappy and concerned about the complexity of the proposals. Tom Reynolds, uh, you know, you work obviously in a traditional multinational industry sector. What do you foresee are going to be the issues that may follow through for companies with these proposals? I think from a business perspective, the biggest concern is tax uncertainty. Because tax certainty is a critical factor that influences investment and other commercial decisions. I think from our perspective, what we, what we see is that from the submissions and from the virtual public consultation meeting last, last week, there was significant concerns 
raised in terms of the complexity and the administration burden. And I suppose in some cases, the practicality, workability of the pro proposals. And I suppose from a business perspective, excess, excess complexity will cause undue compliance costs and potentially poor public engagement and added difficulty in managing international tax, tax disputes. They're going to be the critical aspects from a business perspective as, as, as we look at it. And Fergal, there's a current void by not having consensus. And, you know, a number of countries have introduced unilateral measures, which has led to further uncertainty at the moment and disputes around the world. How are these disputes playing out in reality for companies around the world? Well, it, it goes back to that issue of uncertainty you raised. And, you know, Pascal used the analogy of trying to land a plane and it might crash. What he is very modestly failing to add is that the plane is being attacked by fighter planes. The winds are blowing very heavily and uh, the runway is moving at the same time. So, you know, I wouldn't underestimate what's trying to be achieved here. We're trying to effectively take a global tax system, which has broadly speaking remained unchanged for 100 years, and to bring in a new global regime that will last us for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So I, we can't underestimate the scale of the task that has been sought to conclude, and we've been working on over the last four years. And the alternative, or in Pascal's analogy, if the plane crashes, what happens? I think it's bad news for global trade. I think it's bad news for multilateralism. I think what we have seen is some countries take unilateral differing approaches. And if you're a corporate, to Tom's point, you want certainty and predictability and if at all possible uniformity in approach to taxation around the world. So if you've got country A deciding, well, we're going to tax you on some level of computed profits and country B says we're going to tax you on your gross income and country C taking another approach altogether. That costs you more money. It costs you more compliance costs. You end up with a patchwork quilt of mismatched national jurisdictions, which give a potential rise to double taxation because countries taking a different approach. So it's a recipe for disaster if we don't get a global approach. And therefore, the next six months are probably the most critical six months in the history of global taxation that we've had in the last hundred years. If we get this right over the coming six months and if Pascal gets us to a landing, a landing pattern, because we then have to land it with the implementation. But if we get there, it will, I think, remove a huge element of uncertainty for businesses. It will give a clear roadmap, not just for the year or two ahead. It will give us a clear roadmap for the next decade. But there's a lot yet to be done over the next six or eight months. And assuming that we do get to that, that landing patch and get to that new global system, Pascal, would you see a role for the OECD in mediating taxpayer disputes in the future? No, not necessarily. But maybe before responding to that question, just a couple of words on the complexity. I fully agree that the current drafts, uh, we call them blueprints, are extremely complex. And we are working hard on the simplification so that what would be agreed ultimately would be more simple. And I think the comments by the business community and other observers, by the way, are fair and, uh, and well received. Um, we, one of the reasons why it's so complex is that the US last year kind of stopped negotiating and was stuck with a position called the safe harbor, which, which blocked the negotiation, which means that all the partners, all US partners, 
didn't disclose their game, their cards. And that's why the blueprint is drafted in a way where you have several layers which could be simplified to resume the negotiation, the first command. The second command is, there is a conflict of perspective, which is fine. It's, 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 it's normal, I would say. Businesses rightfully look at their P&L, day-to-day operations, and they see it's very complex. Uh, Fergal, I think, brings the strategic view that, that as policymakers we have, which is, okay, it may be complex, but what's the alternative? And anyway, every solution is complex, so you need to navigate that. Now, complexity is is core to tax. So I, I think we need to be careful not to be too complacent with ourselves, always saying, oh, it's complex, it's bad. I mean, tax is complex. And if we make tax simple, it will be extremely unfair. And it's business which will complain. It's it's too simple. It doesn't reflect the different the different realities that we are in. But complexity will translate with disputes. It's already translating with disputes. We can see an increase of international disputes. And frankly speaking, the world is very poorly equipped to deal with these disputes. I have a lot of sympathy for tax administrations, which have the feeling that businesses have been too aggressive over the past 20, 30 years. But I have absolutely no sympathy for their inability to properly manage the cases of double taxation. So you have a world which is bizarre, where you have massive double non-taxation, or you had before BEPS, and you had cases of double taxation, sometimes between high-tax countries, and, and, and they... Uh, and, and they can last years, decades, and there is no obligation to eliminate double taxation. That's your question. How do we how do we address that? We address that by improving dispute resolution mechanisms, by improving dispute preventions, and it's core to the architecture of amount A, if we talk about pillar one, because tax administrations would have to give something like an advanced pricing ag- uh, agreement on, on all the amount A, the scope, the quanta, and all that, and ultimately improving dispute resolution through something equivalent to arbitration. Can it be delegated to an international organization like the OECD? No. I think countries already are reluctant to move to arbitration. If we tell them, you know, it's it's an, an, an unaccountable technocrat like Pascal who will do that, for sure you kill it. So no way. We can facilitate. We can provide the secretariat. We can provide the infrastructure to make it move faster. And that, of course, we'll we'll, uh, look at uh, very carefully. And coming back to Pascal's point there, it's, you know, one of the selling jobs or one of the selling propositions here for this new global initiative is it would reduce the number of disputes because if there were now a common understanding of how we approach global tax, in theory it should. And, and that, I think that is one of the selling points for where, when we come to land. If we all can agree on a common set of principles, then the possibility of cross-border disputes should, in theory, diminish. Hopefully that will be the case. Perhaps not good for businesses like mine, but, but uh, we, we would take that. Pascal, do you, do you feel that within the, the binding resolution it should be mandatory? Because from a business perspective, without having mandatory binding resolution, we still face the same issues where tax disputes can go on for a long time and we can end up in a situation if we haven't got a consensus, we end up with double taxation. Yeah, the answer is yes, of course. Uh, now, is it arbitration or another mechanism? That's an open question. It will not be arbitration for a number of countries because 
for many reasons, good and bad reasons, and, and there is also a good deal of good reasons, they, they cannot move to arbitration, but we, 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 we are not stubborn and we can navigate this, we can have mechanisms which will be equivalent to arbitration. What matters, I think, is what you've just pointed to, it must be binding, it must be compulsory. So at the end of the day, you have the elimination of double taxation. This is what matters for companies. This is what matters also for tax administration. If they want to be credible, and that's what we need to work out. Now, the the the, the way to do it, whether it's arbitration, and it can be, and you have already, I don't know, more than uh, thirty countries which have opted in arbitration. The multilateral instrument that we developed in the in the context of BEPS. Fine, so be it. But if you have India or China or some other countries where the risk of double taxation is, is not nil, to use another statement, and you know these countries, for several reasons, will not move to arbitration, you can have mechanisms which are equivalent with panels of tax administration. What matters is that at the end, the decision taken is compulsory and binding on the tax administration. So one of the surprising developments in the process has been the way the concept of an effective minimum tax rate, which is essentially uh, the pillar two we outlined at the beginning, has come to the fore. And Fergal, do you think that this this development, that, that the drive to find a new way of taxing digitised businesses and particularly large tech businesses, has this been eclipsed now by the concept of an effective minimum rate? It is interesting. I mean, if you go back to the start of the process a few years back, it was always, it, it was, you know, the bigger picture of how do we tax the digital economy? Do we look at changing taxing rights? This issue of a minimum tax has really come up on the inside track quite late in the day and yet has got significant traction, particularly among European countries. From an Irish perspective, you know, there would be some who would say this was a Machiavellian a trick all along. This was the real. I don't believe that myself. I actually believe that the you know original proposal is what it is. I'm I'm still not convinced that it should be the leading edge. I still think looking at whether we can change a once in a generation, once in a hundred years way of how we tax corporations around the world. I still think that is the prize, the real prize uh, that is there to be got. But it does. This is where principles meet politics. And, you know, if it was just Pascal and Tom and myself trying to work out the, the correct answer, we would come to an answer that was heavily laden with principles, that was defensible. But when you layer on national and international politics, those principles get diluted. And I think the minimum tax is a kind of um, an understandable populist approach by some countries to say, well, no, no, we don't like tax competition, because, you know, and Ireland would say we, we like, you know, we Ireland has changed from being a tax incentive country to a low tax country. We believe in tax competition, but fair tax competition. I think the push to minimum effective rates is in part people saying we don't like tax competition and we're a big country and we don't like smaller countries having this ability to lower its rates. So that if I can speak parochially for a moment, that is potentially worrying for Ireland because even as recently as last week, we have some people saying, oh, well, 12.5% is too low a rate for this minimum tax. So it's something we've got to watch. And yes, am I surprised it has gained the prominence it has, particularly over the last 12 months? I am a bit given, you know, what was the larger focus, but that's politics. <laughs> and Pascal, what's your view on this, this concept coming to the fore? There is some history there. For decades, 
tax competition was the norm accepted. There was a first attempt to introduce some form of regulation in the 90s and, and, and it, it largely failed in, in the sense that it turned into what Fergal has just described, uh, moving from uh, tax incentives to, to uh, a competition on the rates and, and broader basis. This was called the harmful tax practices. It failed in the sense that it didn't stop what large countries, high-tax countries, had in mind. So from their perspective, that was failure. For other countries' perspective, like Ireland, that was great success. When we did BEPS, we, we, we were confronted to this issue of, of how do you deal with that. First, you eliminate the incentives, the, the disguised incentives, the uh, secret rulings and all that. Easy. And then we looked, it was action three of the BEPS action plan at strengthening CFC legislation, anti-abuse stuff. And, and there, the US, and at that time it was the Obama administration, came up with the idea of a global minimum tax. And this was rejected because the Obama administration was not in a position to get it passed in the US. The big surprise, and Fergal didn't mention it, he's, he's writing his comments on symbolism for high-tax European countries, European high-tax countries like France and Germany. But what's extremely interesting, and I think the game changer, it's no Machiavel here, but, but that was blunt and abrupt uh, a change, the U.S. tax reform coming from the ones, the Republicans, who did fight back against the idea of regulating tax competition are the ones who killed the game. With the U.S. tax reform, they slashed the rate to 21 and introduced guilty, global intangible low tax income, which means that they introduced this rule, which is, again, pretty, pretty blunt, below a certain effective tax rate, the US, even though they move to a territorial system, will top it up, will take the difference. And when you have a player as important, as key as the US moving to that direction, no wonder that uh, Germany or France would like the same. So I think that's the strong dynamic. The first proposal in the context of BEPS, which was evacuated because the Obama administration was unable to get it through Congress, and the big surprise that the Republicans adopted it. Now, what may happen is that uh, the Biden administration may tighten the rules of guilty by moving to a jurisdictional blending, looking at the effective tax rate on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis instead of a global average. And this is the model you find in pillar two. So you have some form of convergence here between the US, which may want to increase the rate uh, from 10 to, I don't know what rate, but above, tighten the rules uh, and maybe relax the rules of elimination of double taxation, which don't work. And they will probably find some solutions in the blueprint of pillar two. And if they move into that direction, it's going to be even more important for them that the rest of the world moves because otherwise they will put their companies at a competitive disadvantage. So I think you have there a strong dynamic. The last word on pillar two is at the end of the day, countries can move on their own which the US did, because you do not really need, it's not a must have, to have international coordination. It's a good to have, because if you don't have international coordination, which is what we're proposing, then you face very serious risk of double taxation or, 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 or trouble for companies. So that's why we think our action here is, is useful to support a policy change, which is wished by large countries, and to limit the uh, negative impact on smaller countries. I know it's only days into the administration, 
in the US, the new administration. Are you getting those those kind of little feelers at the moment, those straws in the wind to indicate that is the direction they may go in? Or, or ha- what's your feeling on that at this early stage? The only statement that we have from the new US administration on the record is a hearing by Janet Yellen to the Senate Finance Committee for her confirmation. And it, it it's one or two sentences, but they are precisely about that. The US will be engaged in the OECD process because we want to put an end to the race to the bottom. And so we want to limit the opportunity for companies to to do tax planning. So, uh, you know, she expressed support for the overall OECD approach, but her words were very much tainted with pillar two considerations. And Fergal, you were closely with many US multinationals. What would they like to see happening in this process? Well, above all, certainty and just a situation where they can plan. I think, you know, a lot of companies have had turmoil for want of a better word in recent years you've got the US changes coming in with guilty a lot of them have moved their intellectual property in the last year or two either back to the US or indeed onshore to Ireland so I think this part of the debate is coming at a time where there's stability a little bit in their own internal affairs where they're putting their IP how their business operations are set up so I think what they want now is some kind of line of sight over the next few years where they can they can see with certainty what their tax position is going to be in. And certainly talking from to a number of them over the last few months, I mean, it's, it's amazing over Pascal's reign how, you know, if I go back five or six years and I was talking to some of these companies that were saying, oh, the OECD process, it'll never happen and we're not going to engage. And you fast forward five or six years and they're all now accepting the inevitability of this. And in fact, are in fairness, and Pascal will validate this, many of them are engaging positively with the process. So I think companies will want now certainty. They want, uh, and in, in, in getting to that end game, I think they're looking for principles that they can, you know, like if you look at early on, we talked uh, in the OECD process, we, we said we tax companies where value was created and people kind of grasp that as a principle maybe we can we can hold on to you know as we get near the political end of the settlement those principles are becoming harder to discern and we've had a principle for 100 years the arm's length principle and it it has lasted 100 years and i think you know pascal's challenge in, in in the coming few months is not just to get everybody to a landing spot but to get them to in one that you have a set of principles that then people can say okay I see a principle and we can all understand what that principle is. My fear is, and I hope this doesn't happen, there's a political fudge that means we have an outcome which is not clear what the principles are. And I think that way could lead to disaster in the longer term. So, Pascal, at the outset of this whole BEPS process, there was a huge amount of commentary about Ireland's use of tax incentives to you know, bring FDI here and the use of Ireland by companies to minimise their corporate, their corporate tax bills. We've moved a long way, hopefully, through that journey now over the last few years. What's the view of Ireland internationally now? I think the view of Ireland is still very much tainted by the past 30 years, that you are extremely competitive, to put it mildly and positively, and uh, some would say you're a tax haven. It's a fact. I wouldn't say it. I think you're an investment hub, that you've been extremely smart, and that your support to the BEPS project was strategic and, and smart because it has attracted further FDI in Ireland. I would say the problem of Ireland is that you're too successful 
at this business. Uh, when you look at the increase of the GDP, the year following BEPS, because you had onshoring of IP, that was necessarily easy to manage. When you look at the increase of corporate income tax, that's not easy to manage because you still have this perception that there is a gap between what's really carried out in Ireland, the value created in Ireland to take the terms of Fergal and the profits which are located in Ireland. So you you still have this, this challenge of perception with the European partners, with other countries in the world. You've been extremely engaged and we've worked very closely with previous governments, with uh, this government. Uh, the current finance minister is, is very astute and very much engaged and, and very constructively engaged. But there is a challenge. You're, you're too successful and you need to move in a way which doesn't harm the interest of Ireland. But, but not harming the interest of Ireland is to find the right balance and, and, and not to, to be the winner takes it all because at some point there is too much envy and you have no more players at the poker table, right? Tom, if agreement on this reform process is, is reached by the end of the year, say, how long do you think it will take for companies, multinationals to bet it down? Presumably it's a very, they're hugely complex organisations. It'll take quite a bit of time for this to all uh, evolve and, and play out in, in companies' functions. I think with the complexity it'll bring, and I, I suppose companies have to modify their systems to try and get the visibility on the information that's needed as well, because all the information is, isn't there or available. It's in different formats. It'll be modification of systems, etc. I think it's going to take a couple of years for all of this to come into play. And I suppose from that, I have a question for Pascal. In terms of as we look at Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, do we see that they would be implemented in a phase basis? So, for example, when we look at Pillar 1, we see it covers the automated digital service and the consumer-facing business, do we see that that could be phased in or that Pillar 2 could become before Pillar 1? Or what's his take on that in terms of what, what will be reached as an agreement? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure I have the answer because that may be part of the uh, um, uh, last mile for the political deal. So hard to say. Uh, two considerations, though. One is we as Secretariat, we think that we need to start with a limited number of companies, which means that we may need to have a very high threshold, 2 billion euros of turnover, why not 5 billion? And there you have a manageable number of companies in scope, which would allow tax administrations to do not, not a dry run, but, but a real run with uh, these companies, but, but managing them. If we start that high, we, we'll have to have a, a trajectory downward, which means that a progressive implementation. As regards the uh, phasing on the scope, I don't know. The US may have the solution. I tend to think that it may not be the case. There was an attempt in June last year by a number of countries who wrote to uh, the steering group of the inclusive framework to propose a staged approach, starting with digital, moving to consumer-facing businesses later. And uh, that triggered a very strong reaction by the US with a letter by Secretary Minuchin, which was backed by Senator Wyden, ranking member, now chair of the Senate Finance Committee, and, and Senator Grassley. So there seems to be some form of bipartisanship in the US as regards the fact that there is no ring fencing of the digital economy. We'll see what is the issue today. I mean, the dispute is on digital. So one could say, okay, let's let's sort this out first and, and then we look at the rest. So you have a rationale for that. You have a rationale against that. 
which is we cannot ring fence, we should not ring fence, uh, which has been a bipartisan position in the US. So uh, a staging of, of uh, based on scope, I have some doubts. Uh, a, a progressive implementation based on the size of companies, I think is, is something which is likely to happen because it, it sounds reasonable. Samantha, can I just come back in on, on one of Pascal's comments there about reputation? He's, he, he's right, we, we, we've suffered reputationally in recent years. And, you know, I think it's time for Ireland to push back on that a bit. So, for example, we took a lot of flack about the Apple case taken by the European Commission. Quite a lot of flack. That was thrown out of court, absolutely disparaged as a worthless case. And yet the Commission are going on at it again. And we're going to carry that around with us for another few years while it's, it's prosecuted. And there is a bit of envy about how successful Ireland has been done. And Pascal is right, we have done excessively well. And, you know, it would be disingenuous of me to say that tax wasn't a big component part of Ireland's offering back in the 80s and 90s as we attracted those companies in. But when you talk to many of those companies, and I'm thinking of, I had a number of discussions last week with the farm industry, they will go a long way down the list before they get to tax, particularly post the US changes. They will talk about the regulatory system here, the availability of skills, the fact that there's an ecosystem for pharma companies here. So I think we need to say to our European neighbours, yes, tax was part of our offering when it was perfectly acceptable as, a, as an underdeveloped country back in the 80s and 90s. But we're, we're in a different regime now. Fair tax competition is appropriate. But we shouldn't be apologetic. And I sometimes worry that, you know, certain elements of Ireland are almost apologetic that we've been successful. I think we need to be, we need to defend it. I think we need to defend our rate of 12.5%. But we have to be clear, it has to be fair tax competition now. You know, when, when I, I was one of the first people to publicly come out about seven or eight years ago and say the double Irish really had a very short shelf life and needed to go. We're in a new regime now. We're in a new world. We can only do things that are fair, but we're small enough to be nimble if we need to enhance our R&D tax regime, for example. We're nimble enough to be able to do that. But I think it's, it's time now for Ireland to say, yeah, you know, we may have had a checkered past. Uh, but we have a, a pretty spotless future and we need to be proud of it and look to maximise it. And I think, Fergal, just to add to that, I think one of one of the great advantages of Ireland is the ease to do business in comparison yeah. to some of our neighbouring countries. And I think that's very important to highlight and where we fit into that whole process helps us tremendously. It's closer to Boston than Berlin, as, as Mary Harney once memorably said. <laughs> I mean, is there any risk to Ireland's economic model, which, as we've mentioned, the 12.5% corporate tax rate has been the cornerstone for so long? Uh, with this process, is there any risk to the whole economic model in Ireland here? No, I, I, I don't believe so. And like, let's be honest about 12.5% rate. It could be 13. It could be 11. It could be 14. At this stage, 12.5 is not about the number. It's about the brand. We've said when the IMF were here in, in 2009, we weren't going to give it up. It's become totemic now. We can't change it almost because we said we never would. We, we held on to it through the fire. So it's, it's not the number. It's, it's Ireland's approach to the rate. No, we're, not, we're going to lose tax revenues if, if the plan comes to land. We will lose a billion, maybe two billion. 
But we've gained that, as you've seen in recent years, through IP coming on shore. So again, back at the outset of the of the, the BEPS process, I said, look, this would be good for Ireland. It would close down tax havens where companies had profits but no activities. There would also, on the contrary side, end up being tax paid in countries where you had customers but no activities. But Ireland net-net would probably win. I think we've seen most of that so far. We're going to see some of the downside in the next year or two. But, you know, is, am I worried about the Irish model collapsing? Absolutely not. Pascal, the European Commission this week launched a new consultation called Fair and Competitive Digital Economy, Digital Levy. Where does this sit with your own project? And does it make, you know, discussions with the US any more difficult? Is it helpful in general? What's your view on it? It's a bit of both, but I think it's perfectly fair that uh, countries or grouping of countries like the EU would move. I mean, the negotiation started literally in 2013, seven years. And it's true that the US has not always been that um, uh, constructive in the negotiation. I mean, at the time of the Obama administration, it was no way we don't want to do anything. Trump administration, the Trump administration was more constructive because they passed their tax reform, but then at some point they became a bit erratic in the negotiation, not accepting what they had been asking for. So it's been a very, very long time. Countries are frustrated. You have this this very deep divide with the US perceiving actions on DST, digital service taxes, as an attack against America. And that's bipartisan in the US. And the Europeans feeling that the Europeans, high-taxed European countries, but also smaller countries like Austria, thinking that it's extremely unfair because they cannot tax anything on these companies, which may now be taxed in the US, post-US tax reform, post-BEPS, but still don't pay anything there because their revenue is booked in, in Ireland or in Singapore and, and not where the users Oh, so you have these, these deep divides in, uh, in the perception, which has driven a number of countries to move. Uh, France being iconic there because the French finance minister has made it almost a personal case to uh, tax the GAFA, as the French uh, love saying. So the fact that the European Union Commission would move, I think, in that context makes sense. What matters is that they do it in an orderly manner. And what we can read or hear from them is very clear. They don't want to disrupt the OECD process. Now, because digital tax may be a non-resource in terms of calendar, they may come up with a proposal in June, but the proposal by the Commission is not an act by the European Union, right? It needs to be approved by unanimity. So uh, I think it's something like, a teaser or something to push countries to come to agreement to show that if there is no agreement, as Fergal uh, said earlier, echoing me, uh, it's a very bad situation. Um, but uh, this bad situation, we hope, can be avoided. And the Commission is not saying, I'm moving on my own and we would have to fight to get them back. Not at all. They, they are very aware of the fact that they cannot disrupt the negotiation. And what, what, what Pascal doesn't need to say is that it is a little bit helpful, I think, to the OECD because there was a British-French poet called Hilaire Belloc and he, he wrote a poem about a young boy who went to the zoo with his nurse and he runs away from the nurse and he gets eaten by a lion. And the closing line of the poem is, always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. And I think Pascal can rightly say, stick with the OECD 
because there could be something worse <laughs> in the OEC, in the EU program. So I think a lot of countries like Ireland will say, well, I see what the EU is doing. We have hitched our star to the OECD. We really want the OECD to be success. So in a way, I think the EU's move is, is, is helpful to the politics of getting agreement, certainly within Europe. Well, on that note, we'll uh, leave it there. That's it from this edition of Tax Talk. And thanks very much for joining us today.